however you define purpose of education, what planet are you on if you think the purpose is to provide, you know, nine or 10 GCSEs at the end of the day with certain numbers attached to them that fail a third of our children from the outset? You know, it, it feels very much to me that very few people would say that that is the purpose of formal education. And we have many reasons, including economical, you know, things that directly affect GDP in this country that tell us that we need reform. Welcome to Rethinking Education. Education's critical friend. Hello and welcome to episode 8 of the Rethinking Education podcast. As you can probably tell if you've listened to any previous episodes, I have a more or less insatiable thirst for talking about education and I am really relishing the opportunity that this podcast is affording me to have in-depth conversations with fascinating people about how we might rethink education and reform it in an attempt to bring about a more harmonious, equitable state of world affairs. It's a lofty goal, I realise, but it keeps me off the streets. As well as just satisfying my unquenchable appetite for talking about education, I would really like for this podcast to be the catalyst for a wider conversation about education reform. With this in mind, there is now a Rethinking Education community forum where listeners can follow up the ideas we discuss in the podcast, ask questions either to myself or to my guests, and interact with one another as we think through the details of how we might rethink and reform education. There's also a free 10-part video course, Learning to Learn at Home, for parents and carers who want to help their children, anyone really, but young people in particular, become more confident, proactive, independent learners. The Rethinking Education Community Forum is a mighty network so it works on any device. If you're on a computer, visit rethinking-education.mn.co or you can download the Mighty Networks app and search for Rethinking Education. Okay, on with the show. Today, I'm speaking with Priya Lakhani, OBE. Priya is the founder and CEO of Century Tech, an award-winning artificial intelligence edtech company. She's also the author of a book called Inadequate, The System Failing Our Teachers and Your Children, which was recently published by John Catt. I'll come back to the book shortly. In 2008, Priya left her job as a barrister to set up a philanthropic cooking source company, Masala Masala, through its charitable foundation, Masala Masala provided millions of meals and thousands of vaccinations to the underprivileged in India and Africa and funded several schools. A few years later, Priya pivoted again, this time setting up Century Tech, this AI edtech company. Century is now the global leader in AI-powered learning for schools and families, working in dozens of countries around the world. In 2018, Century won the prestigious MIT Solve Award for Education, and in 2019, Priya was named Economic Innovator of the Year by The Spectator. 
It was fascinating to speak with Priya. She embodies many of the dispositions that I want all young people to leave school with. She's a gifted communicator with a strong moral purpose, somebody who doesn't take no for an answer and who is able to retrain and gain mastery of new knowledge and skills in a really short space of time, entirely under her own steam. To return to Priya's recently published book, Inadequate, here's a sample of some of the comments that people have made in reviewing the book. Sir Anthony Selden, the well-known educationalist and author, wrote, Priya Lakhani is a visionary thinker. Yesterday, her words seemed speculative. Today, they are coming into being. Tomorrow, educators, parents and politicians will be left behind if they haven't listened to her. The next quote is by Lord Jim Knight, the former schools minister. Priya Lakhani uses her forensic analysis skills to identify the key problems with our broken education system. Her vision for education is profoundly human, but turbocharged by the tools of technology to offer real hope for teachers and learners. And the final quote I'll share is from Jeff Barton, is the General Secretary for the Association of School and College Leaders. Priya Lakhani sets out a vision for ending the game of education policy as political ping-pong, breaking out of our obsession with accountability and creating an education system fit for the brave new world in which we find ourselves. It's a book that constantly challenges the status quo, setting out a compelling and optimistic vision of what education could, should look like. It's an intoxicating, uplifting read. And I would add my own endorsement. I thoroughly enjoyed this book. It's really interesting to read a book that's not written by somebody who's a working teacher. She's looking at this from outside of the education system, although she's obviously working in ed tech. Uh, and I think that it's really valuable to hear her thoughts. This, as always, is a fascinating conversation in which we explore why we need to embrace learning to learn, obviously music to my ears, the importance of fighting for education and not taking no for an answer, and the transformative potential of AI in education. I hope you enjoy the show. Priya Lakhani, welcome to the Rethinking Education podcast. Thank you, James. So I became aware of you only earlier this year when you reached out to uh, to ask me about some research that I've been involved in uh, to include in in your new book, um, which I really enjoyed, by the way. So that your Thank new you. book, Inadequate, is a fascinating read, especially the bit on page fifty four that <laughs> talks about me. Um, so it's my my favourite bit too, James. <laughs> <laughs> I could, I could tell that. So so. Let's talk about the title first. It's, you're not yeah. pulling your punches there. It's in big red capital bold letters, inadequate. And the strap line is uh, the system failing our teachers and your children. So why the title? Well, we all know the word inadequate in education. You know, it's uh, if you look at Ofsted's categories of schools and their ratings, it's a word that you know, instills a lot of fear in a lot of head teachers in the country. Um, and actually, while schools are often judged and they're categorised, you know, within these within these sorts of ratings, actually what was really important to us was to categorise the whole system. And if we were to genuinely categorise the system, the book was actually in draft, it was called Requires Improvement. 
um, until the last minute. And and we we read it, you know, we looked at the final edit and 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 we just thought requires improvement is far too polite. And just <laughs> and given the book is very data driven, you know, there are lots of um, there's lots of data in there. That, you know, we've backed everything up with evidence and you know the sources that are there for people to go and do some further research. You know, we had a look at it and thought actually it's about being honest. And if we're really being honest, where does this fall if we were to rate it? And it's in, inadequate. And so we called the book inadequate for that reason. And we put a big red stamp uh, on the front of it. It's very simple um, because we just really thought that that reflected the system. And it's not just thinking about what's my view as the author. It was really about the answers to thousands and thousands of questions that we have asked educators over the last few years while working with them. You know, lots of questions answered, you know, from parents who've been in touch or when we're at public events talking about education, you can often go into a really large room and you can ask them, you know, the first question when you're speaking, for example, on stage is, is anybody here happy with this current state of the education system? And no one puts their hand up. And so the idea was, well, what should we call this? And, and you know, it is what it is. Um, it's not just trying to be attention seeking, but we definitely thought that, well, if we were going to categorise it, unfortunately, it falls into the last and lowest category. Yes. And you make the point early on in the book that in terms of how Ofsted rates schools, there are only 4% nationally that are rated as inadequate. Yeah. But you make the point that a lot more than 4% of this system is failing. And, you know, I know a lot of people who work in Ofsted outstanding schools who would say, this is this is not outstanding. This is not this is not right. Um, and I share absolutely share many of your concerns, hence having a having a podcast about rethinking education. Right. Um, and people well, often... Sorry, Sorry no. the point the point you just, you just made is quite right. You know that you have head teachers and teachers who work in outstanding schools, and they should be proud of that. And I know that they are, and that's that's fantastic. But I've never met a head teacher or a teacher who sits on their laurels. You know, who just says, "Well, because we've got the outstanding stamp, we can just you know coast along and, and make no improvements." And why is that? It's not just because they want to improve the school for the learners, you know, for the stakeholders to whom they serve, but they also need to provide so much more than what is actually prescribed, for example, in the curriculum. And so, you know, that's that's essentially why they feel that way. And a lot of the questions that we've asked have been of teachers and head teachers who are rated as outstanding in terms of the system. But then, you know, we've gone down, we, we have schools uh, that we work with here and requires improvement, for example. And what's interesting is that even though every school, every teacher and every student is unique, the themes that they often talk about are often the same. And it was just high time that we thought, we should make sure that they're heard, but they should be heard by parents. And that's why the book is very much written for parents, because there is a whole community of people who really need to understand exactly what's going on behind the scenes in education. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I found it a really refreshing read. And it's an unusual book in the sense that you aren't a teacher. I know that you have taught previously in higher education. Was that right? Yes, that's right. I taught law. Yeah. And and increasingly, I've noticed that there's a sort of an unwillingness and almost like an even like an intolerance for people who are not teachers and even for ex-teachers to deign to express an opinion on education. There are lots of teachers who get very exercised and understandably, you know, in some cases, there are often, for example, lots of non-teachers on panels talking about teaching and, you know, including including representative voices is really important. 
But I think that it's great that people outside of education, in terms of not currently working in the system, share their views on it because it's such an important thing. And also because teachers are sort of, you know, up to their necks in marking and so on and often don't have the time or the space to sort of to to really to to really take a sort of a zoomed out view and to look at where this whole thing is going. Um, so I really welcomed it, and the, you know, the, you, you, there's a number of things I've, I've been reading your book, um, and it's absolutely covered in highlights and squiggles and stuff. And there's lots of things that you say that I've thought about a lot before, but that you express very, very succinctly, which I, I really, really enjoyed. So we're going to get into some of the contents of this book later on. Um, do you want to say something before we go on? Yeah. So I, well, I just think it's really important that you know, people outside education do express their views. And, you know, of course, people get get upset, you know, it's like telling the medical profession, if you're not a medic, you know, and you give them lots of advice about how to change, but actually, it's not telling teachers how to teach. That's not what that's not what it's doing. We have a vested interest in education. You know, our children are in schools. And so many members of the public will have opinions about education because the stakeholders that, you know, the, the, the people who benefit from the education system will be their children. And so it's absolutely right that parents, for example, people who are working outside education have a view and that those views are heard. Obviously, teachers are experts in teaching. Right. And they are. And, and that, you know, therefore, we must wait their opinions accordingly when it comes to teaching. But the reason why this book was so important, and actually one of the co-editors, Mark Steed, who's the chief executive of the Kellett School in Hong Kong, he wrote an email to me at the end and he said, you know, he really appreciated the book being out because he said, actually, some of the things that teachers have been talking about and head teachers have been talking about for a very long time it needs to be said by somebody outside the system because there are certain people um, who may be in government or working in organisations or institutions or academics out there who are actually not listening to teachers and they have a huge say in you know, teaching and learning and how schools are run. But actually, a lot of what teachers are saying sometimes falls on deaf ears, you know, and, and they're just saying, well, we've heard that before. Whereas actually... There is no problem whatsoever, I don't think, with people from outside the system saying we agree with this too. And that's what it's doing. You know, there is a movement towards how we can change, change and transform education. And there are lots of different ideas about how to do this. But unless parents buy into it, it's going to be very, very difficult to change the system. And who are we changing it for? Well, we're changing it for the benefit of learners and teachers. And what's really fascinating is when the book came out, We've had so many teachers write to us and so many on LinkedIn, on Amazon, review it and say, thank goodness something is out here that is different. But it is actually stating the case that we've been talking about for a long time. And, and actually, I'm really happy that we did that. And I think it's a really important piece of work. And the more and more people that we have taking an outside perspective, as long as it's based on data, and I think that's what we were very clear on. So when we wrote this, we thought we don't want to just say something that's a whim or just a quick opinion of ours. We need to ensure it's based on data, it's sourced, you know, there's evidence behind it, and it's been backed up either quantitatively or qualitatively by the education profession. Mm. Yes. Yeah. And so so just to just quickly on this point about calling it inadequate and so on, like you, you write elsewhere in the book, um, there's a quote that says, the hard work, dedication and love of teachers is being hamstrung by a system that is not fit for purpose. 
And just briefly before we move on to the next part of the conversation, without wanting to sound too much like Jordan Peterson, that depends on what you mean by purpose, right? Yeah. So when people say it's not fit for purpose, so do you, do you sort of have a, have a, and people have got different ideas about the purpose of education. And that's why this whole conversation is such a fascinating mess, you know, in some ways, because it's really complicated. It's values and science and beliefs and what we think education is for. So what's your what's your sense? What, what if when you talk about that the system is not fit for purpose? What do you mean by purpose? Well, when we think about education and and what it's for and what its purpose is, we have to be clear on what happens at the end of it. And I think many of us say, well, look, education should never end, and we are really big advocates of lifelong learning, and that, and that's fantastic. But the formal education system, the one that is being reviewed in the book, if you like, and being you know stamped as inadequate. What's that supposed to provide? Well, that ends, you know, <laughs> ends it for some for, for some students at 16 and others at 18, let's say, you know, across the board in general. And so at 16 and 18, what's supposed to happen? Well, that education system should have prepared those young people for the world of work or, you know, to go into further or higher education or apprenticeship training or whatever it is that they want to do. So it's an ecosystem. It's not just about formal education. We then have to go to further education, higher education, apprenticeship training providers, employers and say, well, what did you want from the system? What, you know, what was it supposed to provide these students with? And what we can't argue against is the fact that over the last decade, there have been reports from some of the largest employers, some of the most innovative employers. You know, there have been reports from some of the largest firms that state that our young our students, our young adults are not leaving formal education with the skills that they need to then, you know, go into the workplace. And and when you ask that question, what do you mean? You know, the devil's always in the detail. Which skills? And, you know, there are lots of reports where they have broken down those skills in terms of when we talk about creativity and socio-emotional intelligence and complex reasoning and crit- which includes you know, critical thinking, higher order cognitive capabilities, attitudes and behaviours to learning, say metacognition, all of these sorts of areas. Um, they have been mapped to various roles. So whether they're management roles, process type roles, manual labour, technical roles, physical science, you know, roles that require empathy, etc. And they've been mapped. And when that work has been done, there is a huge disconnect between what students are currently leaving formal education with and what is needed. And so we have to look at that gap and say, well, what does that mean? And the big firms have said, well, the UK alone is missing out on £140 billion worth of GDP if we don't bridge that gap in terms of, you know, what we call soft skills sometimes, right? And and, and that's slightly, you know, that's a, I get a bit irritated with soft skills. I just say, look, they're core skills. If we call it soft for some reason, it, it feels a little bit like it's less important than, than hard skills. But it's about having a combination of the two. So when we think about the purpose of education, we can first say from a very sort of cold, you know, look at it, um, you know, what is it supposed to do? And we can look at that skills gap and say, well, is it or is it not providing that? Then you need to go into the system. And this is where the educators absolutely, we have to listen to them. We have to really weight their views. (laughs) And often, you know, what's really fascinating is that they do teach a lot of these skills. They do. Students often will leave school and, you know, some of them have got, you know, amazing sets of skills and across the board. But but why do some students have that and some other and others don't? Well, the reason is, is because teachers, senior leaders in schools are working, bending over backwards, above and beyond 
you know, what they are prescribed to do by the curriculum to provide that holistic education. They are doing it, but they're doing it in spite of the curriculum rather than actually being supported by the system. So there's that point. And then just lastly, you know, school is not just about leaving with a bunch of qualifications and skills. School and education learning has never been about assessment, right? Assessment is completely different and that, that's a topic we can come on to. But learning and the love of learning and upskilling oneself, what I like to call learning agility, all of these sorts of skills, they're really important. But also, we want our children to be confident learners. We want them to be able to communicate. We want them to be happy, right? Happy. You know, when you think about your child, you want your child to be safe. You want them to be happy. And then I think the long list comes after those two things. So teachers are often providing that environment where they can feel emotionally fulfilled. Their well-being is being looked after, the pastoral, pastoral care of a child. Schools have to provide that too. That is also what education provides. So Looking at all of that together, and I think we've just scratched the surface, does formal education, is it, you know, in terms of the system, is it structured to provide all of that? And it's it's not about whether some people deliver it or not. It's is the system is, is the system set up to support all teachers to deliver all of that? And the answer there is no. And I think that's where most educators need to be listened to because they'll be saying, no, actually, I'm working till 10 p.m. at night, I'm working all my weekends, I'm trying to make this happen. I've got to focus on the EBAC now because that's how, you know, and, and for listeners who don't know what the EBAC is, it's 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 essentially the way that um, you know, we've de- developed our our curriculum and the weighting of certain subjects which really weight maths English and the sciences heavily and leave some of the arts for example right at the end and and that really affects teachers and then how they deliver education so so I think you know I'll, I'll stop rambling now but but all of that needs to be looked at and so is it fit for purpose no however you define purpose of education what planet are you on if you think the purpose is to provide you know, nine or 10 GCSEs at the end of the day with certain numbers attached to them that fail a third of our children from the outset. You know, it, it feels very much to me that very few people would say that that is the purpose of formal education. And we have many reasons, including economical, you know, things that directly affect GDP in this country that tell us that we need reform. Yeah, I mean, it's, you're, that's a really comprehensive answer. Thank you. And I think it's, it's clear that you're talking about purposes of education. <laughs> I feel like I'm, I'm carrying on for your audience. <laughs> it's just that you, you see, James, you're going to regret asking me to come onto this podcast now. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about purposes of education. And that's what I think that, that it's talking about things that are or are not fit for purpose somehow sort of oversimplifies it because there are multiple purposes. Yeah. And you talk about this, you know, you need to develop a solid knowledge base. There's also skills and attitudes and characteristics um adaptability and so on and sometimes i think that like a couple of times in this conversation i might well take a devil's advocate position because i basically agree with lots of what you say <laughs> no, please go but, ahead but there, so a devil's advocate position would be that there are people within within schools who say that it is absolutely not about preparing people for the world of work that that's a very sort of instrumental like utilitarian sort of view of um like a small view of what education is um I mean I've got an answer to that but I'd be interested to hear in yours well I think that um diff, you know parents um, and guardians will have different views about why they're sending their child to school um why they're going into formal education you know my view is that we want to provide a holistic education to every child by that I mean this sort of 360 kind of approach which is 
you know, offering them what they need to succeed. And, and, you know, what does that mean? Well, to me, it's about offering every child opportunity and choice, whatever background they're from. Opportunity and choice, they sound very vague, but actually they're pretty specific. The problem that we have is that we don't know what that means in 2030 when our primary school children start start leaving formal education. They need to leave with the ability to, to go on to the next step. Now, some people may say, well, you're talking about the world of work. But, you know, in order for them to, to leave school and and be able to survive in the world, there are certain skills that, that one requires, right? And there are certain skills that are beyond what the traditional ki- curriculum, for example, provides. I mean, you know, we don't really teach financial literacy, for example. You know, why not, considering that's an incredibly important skill? There are all sorts of things that we could teach. And, you know, school is also about being in the playground and having fun and, you know, learning how to interact with other children, learning how to interact with teachers, you know, showing respect for your teachers is a really, really important one. You know, it's about so many things. It's not just about work. And and that's part of, actually, there's a whole chapter in the book on that called The Village, you know, and the fact is, is that it takes a village to raise a child. The teachers are are sort of counsellors, pseudo parents, you know, that they're, you know, they do an enormous job. You know, they don't just just sort of focus on teaching geography or or, or mathematics. At, you know, in secondary school or primary school. So, it is about providing a lot more. And then, you know, that begs the question that, well, if we created a, a diagram, and there've been so many workshops and panels on this, and people do sometimes disagree on what what the fundamental purpose of education is. But the idea is to try and find the common ground. You know, and 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 find what what I think generally most people want. And then even if you find that, to just answer the question, is the way that things are set up today working? And and for those, you know, who who will sometimes write and say, well, actually, I think that there's no change required. Well, if you do as you've always done, you get what you've always got. And I can tell you right now, I don't think any of us are happy with, for example, you know, the gap in terms of education and outcomes that the disadvantaged you know, um, are having to cope with at the moment, particularly given that social mobility has been damaged somewhat since COVID. You know, you can't be happy with that. If you're happy with that, I really have to question, you know, who are you focused on? Um, Because actually there are children in areas of deprivation and in coastal towns, for example, where we need to do a lot more. And we should be always pushing ourselves, even if there is a reform of education, we should, you know, take that agile approach that manufacturing companies started with, and then it sort of hit the tech sector. And it's now, you know, very much involved in sort of design thinking, but we should always be iterating, you know, be agile thinking, well, okay, how can we ensure that we're always improving, right? And so that that has to be the attitude in education, because it's just so fundamentally important. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you. Absolutely. The, uh, I mean, I think that the people who say like that, that education should not be about preparing kids for the world of work, it just seems like you're sort of saying, yes, at the end of this process, you might not, you know, be able to earn a living or succeed in the workplace. But what I've taught you is so much more important about the, you know, the history of the internal combustion engine or whatever it is that they've decided is more important than developing these skills. And also, you know, like some people are quite skeptical about the very idea that these skills really sort of um can be taught and that's a whole separate conversation that we might come into later yeah and also james just you know if if you really think it's not about even part of it as the world of work which you know i don't think it's all about that at all but if you even think well it's not at all important then you know i think that's really creating a problem when it comes to social mobility because there are certain children from certain backgrounds and families where their parents you know are in whatever profession 
and they're going to always be able to go into the world of work. Why? Because you know, their parents or guardians will spend time with them, their families, their friends will, they'll get internships and opportunities through their networks and contacts, right? So if we change the system so that, well, we don't need them to be prepared for the world of work, they're going to get it anyway. Well, what about everyone else? What about those children that, you know, don't hear about work experience? They don't have a network to rely on. They, They don't have parents who can who can inspire them and and tell them that actually, you know, you are just as entitled to have dreams and and go and become whatever it is, you know, that you want to. There are those kids that 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 will then struggle. So the problem that we then have is that some children will automatically be given that advantage, which we already know today, you know, already even today that that is the case that there are children who just have Um, uh, you know, they have access to more resources than others. So if we don't use the formal education system to upskill everybody, then you can start to see that, you know, you aren't, we're absolutely not allowing there to be a level, level, you know, a level playing field. And I can see that being a huge problem because then when somebody does an impact and evaluation of that 10 years later and says, well, what happened to incomes and salaries? You know, why are some people still stuck in a certain cycle of, of low income? Um, you know, again, I don't want to draw too much to it because we would need the data. But uh, and I don't really like saying things just on a whim. But I'd be very concerned about what that evaluation report would say if we didn't rely on schools in some way to upskill our children for the workplace when they leave formal education. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's a matter of balance. You know, it's not an either or thing. We can do we can do this and that. The, the, the research that I've been involved in for the last ten years. We increase their their learning outcomes in terms of traditional sort of subject learning and they developed confidence and they were able to develop project management skills and do all kinds of other things. And so it's not doesn't have to be an either or thing. We can we can educate in such a way that it's a win win. Just to pick up on one one more thing you mentioned there, and I know there's a chapter in the book called Graduating in 2030, which is what yeah. you know kids who are currently in primary schools do. There's this other phrase that people are often quite sceptical about, and it's this phrase people often say, like, preparing kids for, for jobs that don't exist yet. Yeah. And it's and it's almost like a, just a, a, a stupid <laughs> phrase. but and, and it's been widely debunked, right? Like, the, of course, like, you know, um, you know, to some extent, jobs are changing. But also, you know, there are lots of things that do remain constant over time. But I don't think that we can, you know, deny the fact that the world of work is changing at an insane rate of pace. And with the with the you know coming of automation and AI and all of these other things, it's just obvious that you know jobs for life don't exist yet. There's a lot more precarious work, zero hours contracts, and it's going to be really useful for people to be learn how to be autodidactic, right? Like I know that you've done in your career that you stopped what you were doing, put the brakes on, yeah. rechanged, studied a nano degree, whatever that is. That's this is new to me <laughs> on online and uh, and retrain and set up a company in something that you had no experience in. That sort of agility that you were talking about is clearly what people are going to need in the future, far more so than they have in the past. Whether or not you would define this as preparing kids for jobs that don't exist yet, you know, to deny that the world of work is in, undergoing a period of rapid transformation is um, just to have your head in the sand, I think. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, so McKinsey's done reports. I think there's so many firms that have reports in, in this particular area that I've come across. But, you know, let's just take one. So, so they predict that, you know, up to 800 million jobs um, will be destroyed by 2030, 800 million. And just to put that into a bit of context, so there are three and a half billion 
workers in the world. So 800 million is a significant number. The, the good news in terms of their report is that 890 million new jobs will be created. So you'll have uh, dis- the destruction of jobs, but then you're going to have new jobs. And one might look at that and say, yes, but isn't that fine? Well, no, it's not, not at the moment, because even though you're going to have new jobs, they will require different skills. Okay. So, and a lot of these jobs that are going to be destroyed will be because of automation. And if you think about automation and artificial intelligence and how it works, this skill of being able to essentially just take a concept and then apply it constantly and consistently that is something depending you know i mean i'm being a bit broad brush here but that's basically something that ai might be able to do very well so it's this idea of these new skills that we mentioned earlier in terms of complex reasoning and you know um you know uh, social perceptiveness and you know like negotiation and and all of these sort of critical thinking that will be really important so why is it necessary to talk about this because the students that leave school at the moment that are in primary school will be looking for these new jobs. And today, if you look at the types of skills they're becoming experts in at school, those tend to be not all of them, but some of them are skills that an AI, for example, could do very well. So we need to ensure that children have these other skills that automated technology will find very, very difficult to replace. It's about empowering the human intelligence rather than the artificial intelligence, right? What's human about us that an AI couldn't replace? Now, when we look at the curriculum and, you know, if you review the curriculum, not just in our country, but elsewhere as well, there is quite an emphasis on rote learning in some curricula, right? And so you have to question, well, you know, what other skills are we building upon that, right, in terms of the application of, of concepts to, to solving problems, et cetera, et cetera, like collaboration, leadership. And, you know, actually some of the skills that um, children learn in drama, art and music, if you think about playing in an orchestra or playing in a team sport, you know, there are skills that you learn while you're doing that. And so this is why one of the big questions as to why we have such an emphasis on certain subjects and the arts, drama and IT skills, et cetera, you know, are at the back of the queue, if you like. You have to question because a lot of those subjects actually, you know, teach these skills for, you know, and, and, and they're sort of a priority in those subjects. So this world of work, it's it's going to look different. And so you and uh, Kate McAllister, Kate McAllister um, led the learning skills curriculum. And, and what I really liked about this was that it's essentially this idea of these, you know, of learning skills that are embedded within the curriculum rather than having to teach something completely separate. And then you, you know, through doing, you know, impact studies with control groups in, in the, the right way in which academics would often, you know, uh, would often assess these studies, you did see huge advantages to students learning in a slightly different way. And so the big question is, well, can we do that nationally? Can we roll this out nationally? And, you know, it, with, with 2030, you know, no matter what happens, and, and I don't, you know, predicting the future is always a very, very difficult thing, and it's often a fool's errand, but, you know, we currently spoon feed our children their education. This is why many nations have started a procurement process or completed a procurement process, which is essentially like a national retraining scheme where they're having to upskill adults, adults who are losing their jobs, right? If we taught this idea of learning how to learn. So you 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 know you talked about about autodidacticism, right? So if we if we enable our children to leave formal education with this ability, I like to call it learning agility, to upskill oneself, to learn how to learn, 
then as the world changes in front of them beyond 2030, 2040, 2050 and onwards, they will be able to then upskill themselves. They'll be able to seek resources to upskill themselves. We now know, particularly, for example, in one of the largest growing sectors, not really, I mean, cross sector, but technology affects every sector, that actually you don't necessarily need a degree, you know, from a traditional university um, to, to go and become a, a coder or an engineer or a developer. You can often train yourself. How do we... Um, get children to to essentially increase their learning agility so that when they leave formal education and things do change, they're not having to then rely on a government mass scheme to upskill them, which, by the way, I think those schemes are really noble schemes. They, they are fit for purpose in terms of what we need now. But, but do we want them later? So you can go online, you know, today, you can go online, uh, you talked about nano degrees. So these online smaller degrees where you don't have to invest three years of your life but you basically you know go and take what you need and then you apply it to your education and what I love about those is you know if you remember the, the matrix and you remember you know the scene where you've got your trinity and your neo and they're plugging into the back of their brains jiu-jitsu or whatever it is or flying a helicopter I remember right so that's obviously a kind of crazy way of thinking about it but you know, the, it's the idea that you get what you need at the time, right? And so you can go online and we have these already, right? So we've got MOOCs, which I know were really overly hyped, but you've got Coursera, Udacity, Udemy, Future Learn, which is a fantastic initiative, you know, um, for, for, from the UK. And so you can go on and you can learn. Now, there's got to be a discipline in that. It's not that easy. You don't just want to be signing up to something. They've got, the, you know, in general, I think MOOCs uh, a while ago, certainly when I looked at them in the market about five years ago, but it had a 96% dropout rate. So you want people to be able to, A, go and search for the resources they need to upskill themselves, to know what they need to upskill themselves with. You then need them to be able to actually have the discipline to, to sign up and then continue with upskilling themselves. And then you need to add a currency to the qualification, right? Because some traditionists will say, well, the only currency that I would I would offer to, to someone's credentials are if they're from a higher education or further education institution or an apprenticeship training provider, et cetera. Whereas actually there is currency to these nano degrees now. Right. And so the idea is that the world will become more accepting of those. But we need to ensure that every student has the ability to go and find them. And that's the issue. Again, that's again an issue that touches on social mobility and the disadvantage. You know, have they got the tech? Have they got the devices? Have they got the bandwidth and the infrastructure? Have they got the ability to go and upskill themselves? Big question. And we need to ensure that they have that as much as everyone else. I would like to pull back a little bit now because um, we've just had a really like quite an in-depth discussion about lots of the problems. This is the stuff that I normally normally put at the end of the podcast, but we sort of got into it and that's great. But I want to pull back because it seems to me that you're a really good example of somebody who embodies this idea of learning agility. And in this in this podcast, I'm really keen to explore the the sort of the background of each guest so that we can find out a little bit more about who you are, because these conversations about education reform um, are not happening in the abstract. Education is not a machine that we can just tweak a few knobs here and there and improve the outcomes for everyone. It, it's messy and it depends on what, what you think education is for and your values and the experiences that you've had and so on. 
And I'm also really interested in this idea of significant learning, learning that's happened in your life that were like pivot points, like light bulb moments, things that have really shaped you as a person. So I really want to get into thinking about solutions to some of these problems that we've been talking about. And we touched upon some of them just now. But first of all, I'd like to just briefly, if you would, just sort of share some of your, your reflections on your own childhood, your own experience of education um, and the uh, any, any sort of moments of, of real sort of significant learning that have shaped you as a person into the person that you are today. Sorry, that's a massive yeah. question. <laughs> <laughs> that's okay. Um, well, I just don't want to bore the audience, but um, I uh, I come from a, a you know a East African Indian background. So my parents are from Nairobi and uh, Jinja in Uganda. Um, originally, they're from Gujarat, uh, so it's the west coast of of India, and um, they you know. They, they, some of them struggled when they were younger. They had, they, you know, they came from from nothing, um, and it's a very traditionally known sort of trait in in that kind of community that education becomes the number one priority for their children. I think a lot of people listening to this, who, for example, if you're a teacher and you're te- you know, you happen to teach uh, ethnic minorities, and um, particularly Indians, you'll, you'll notice this with their families is they're very focused on the results at the end of the day and, and education. So I grew up in about, you know, essentially in an environment where uh, education was number one. Uh, my my dad used to always say to me, in fact, he said this to my kids the other day, uh, which, uh, which was great. And he said, you do know that, you know, uh, you have to respect your teachers even more than you respect your parents. Um, and you know, these are the sorts, these are the sorts of parents where you'll never find books on the floor in their house. Um, I don't know if anyone knows this, but you know, with Hindus, you don't put books on the floor and you never, ever, ever touch a book with your foot because books give you knowledge um, teachers give you knowledge and anything that gives you knowledge is basically treated as, as God. Right. And so I was brought up in that sort of an environment with those sorts of lessons. And so I went to school I uh, spent my term time in in a very, very nice part of the world in Cheshire, um, up north, um, but spent my holidays in Kenya, in Nairobi. And so had a really, really, um, you know, just it was it was just quite surreal. So term time in a leafy part of Cheshire and then holidays, you know, with family where um, in parts of Nairobi you have servants, right? And they live in their servant quarters. And that was very odd, obviously, to have a driver and a, and a nanny and, you know, people like that. So I didn't really understand any of that. And I remember being about six years old, really, really young, and in Nairobi and, you know, just having this moment in my life where um, I just thought I really want to change things for the world. And it's really naive. It's one of those cringe stories that, you know, everyone's going to listen to and say, oh, God, you know, one of those. And uh, but I did. I just thought I want to change the world. I want to focus on equity and justice for the underprivileged. I really didn't like the fact that um, things are very different in parts of East Africa than what I was used to in Cheshire. I just didn't understand why there were servant courses. I didn't quite understand why children on the street weren't wearing shoes and didn't have clean water and I seem to have everything including a driver of a white Mercedes in Nairobi do you know what I mean and it just felt really odd to me so um I grew up and thought well you know I want to change this and with equity and justice obviously you know becoming a lawyer comes to mind (laughs) so I said right I'm going to be a barrister that's what I'm going to do and um you know but with that it's always been part of my life that the idea is you know one must always have integrity one must always do the right thing and, and try and help others and so 
Um, I grew up with that. and But, you know, my school had different ideas to me. So in sixth form, I remember applying and saying I'm going to apply for law and they wouldn't sign my UCAS form because they, they told me that I wasn't bright enough um, from an ethnic minority and female. Wow. And they said, look, barristers, barristers are white male and they go to Oxbridge and you're none of those. So there's no way we're going to do it. And then my father argued with them and argued with them over the phone when he threatened Watchdog on them and Anne Robinson. That was when they, <laughs> that was when they finally started. I think they just thought, oh, God, you know, we'd better give up with this one. And Get then, Anne Robinson out if you really Yeah, he business. said, I'm going to call Anne Robinson. This is a Watchdog issue. I remember that. He stormed <laughs> into the common room. I was so embarrassed. Um, but, you know, at the time I was really embarrassed. And I really thought about this. It's really interesting you asked this question about you know, my background and how all this kind of comes about. Because I've been thinking about it during this period while working from home for a long time. And, you know, why am I a bit strange and like this? I think think writing the book really made me think about it. Um, But actually, I was really, I I was really embarrassed in the common room and I didn't know how to react. But that was a really life-changing moment for me because actually what happened was I saw somebody fight my education I saw my dad be a complete rebel mm. you know in those days you have we have to remember in those days I sound like you know I'm really old now I am not that young but you know it, it was just really different my parents spoke to the principal of my school um really always really respectfully you know they would never argue with the principal of my school or never question the school's you know, the school's decisions in maybe, you know, a parent's evening, for example. I find that really different now, really, really different. You know, if we speak to educators today and and we talk about what parents ask them, if I think about myself and my own children and parents' evening, we ask a lot more questions. We demand a lot more, actually. We're a lot more demanding. Well, well, I don't know if it's just my family, but certainly it was different. But I saw him come in, you know, storm into the common room, speak to Mrs Gilpin, Mrs Gilpin, you know, have a go at her as to why she wouldn't sign my UCAS form. And I do think that was a really defining moment for me because without realising it at the time, the idea that you should fight for what you want and you should persevere, the UCAS form was then signed. Um, I then went on to university. Actually, I did did pretty well, you know, at the end in university and became a barrister and and did exactly what I wanted to do. But even then, people used to say, look, there's no way that you're actually going to make it into the profession. I did have to do all sorts of different things to make it into the profession. So such as, you know, most of my peers would have sort of one or two work experience on their CV. I had 20 because I just knew I needed to have that edge. I needed people to want to interview me and to think, why is that CV so different? Because I wouldn't be on the traditional pile of applications that would make it. You know, mine would go in the bin. So so I had to I, I had to think outside the box. And again, without realising it at the time, but that thinking outside the box, that perseverance, you know, is something that my parents have always instilled in me. My dad has always said to me, never accept, I never accept second best. He's always told me that. He's always said, don't live your life with regrets. You know, he said, when you ask people their opinions about things, they'll always give you their opinion. And if you just follow it blindly, you know, then you end up having a regret. The only person who is sorry is you. He said, they'll just say sorry, but frankly, everyone gets on with it. He's, he used to say these things all the time. Uh, he still does. And this has come from his experience in business as an entrepreneur, you know, uh, you know, one of 10 children who, um, who I, no one really knows how he got himself through education and, and, and did what he did with his life. But it, he was he's just always been really inspiring. And so, um, you know, all I can say is I sort of I had that upbringing. And so I was very lucky. Um, 
and I was constantly surrounded by those messages at home whereas at school actually it was quite different right at school it was you can't do this you can't do that and at home it was yes you can don't listen to anyone so I was lucky that I had that um and then you know I I was running I I was I was a barrister I loved it it's the best job in the world if anyone's looking for a job that's a lot of you know it's really important it was very good fun um really really challenging but I really noticed that I wasn't changing the world like I'd promised myself and and that really disheartened me in so many different ways and so I had this entrepreneurial nature anyway you know I was the kind of kid that sold chomp bars in the netball courts and made three pence profit from my friends I then scaled to curly whirlies and made seven pence profit (laughs) (laughs) you know and then my brother and I would go to auction houses and buy things and you know, sell them for profit. I used to trade socks and shares on the market, made a lot of money when Glazer bought, Malcolm Glazer bought Manchester United, um, which I know some people won't like me for, but the fact is, you know, it was a great decision and uh, <laughs> and did all of that. And, and frankly, learned a lot from my brother as well, my older brother, he's really entrepreneurial. So being a barrister, still thinking, well, how am I actually going to make change? And and decided that actually I could, I could see a, a gap in the market. There was no fresh food in the supermarkets um when it came to cooking sauce for ethnic food um I had no time to cook when I was a barrister I was working really late nights um weekends and I really love cooking I've done some of the cordon bleu courses so when I want to do something I do it properly I think that's that that's definitely been something that I've learned about myself um I enjoy learning a lot you know I get into things and then I become quite obsessive about learning everything about them and um and came up with this idea of ethnic sources but this was an opportunity to fulfill one of my dreams and so I decided that when I set up set up this social enterprise this food company for every pot of sauce that we would sell we'd feed a homeless person a hot meal and we'd also I was thinking about this triangle that I sort of came up with when I was young this is not at all in you know this is not original in any way by the way but it's just the idea that if a child um, has nothing and you want to get them out of that cycle of poverty and I'm talking about countries like in India and and parts of East Africa that I knew very well right then they need um they need health care um they need to survive they need nutrition and then they need education and and the reason why is because for example if you go to some of the slum areas in in India you can't get a child to attend a free school even a slum school if they're hungry yeah because they'll go and beg on the street right you see this a lot so I thought okay we need to provide the three so with masala masala we would provide free meals we would fund the schools that they go to and we provide pentavalent five and one vaccines and and that was you know it was a great um little venture in it and it and it, it taught me a lot about about business as well I I didn't know what I was doing when I started um and I just learned Part of that is a little bit about being fearless in some ways. You sort of get into things and you don't suffer from paralysis over analysis, right? Because some people have really great ideas and then they analyse it so much they never actually get started. So you've got to have that balance between constantly researching and analysing, but also doing, you know, also actually making that first move and then learning with a very agile approach and, and just changing as you go. And again, these are not rocket science. You know, I always think that it's just it's just learning as you go from your mistakes and changing approach. So sound like kind of common sense things. So it's kind of crazy that, that we often talk about these things. Um, and then did that. And and, and fr- frankly, there that was an education in itself. Um, it was um, a really interesting experience. Prior to that, I actually taught, I forgot to mention that when I was a barrister in the evenings, I taught law. Um, that taught me a lot about what I did and did not like about teaching. Um, 
and um I, you know and then I learned about the problems in education and uh, I learned this you know frankly I, th- I feel like I cheated a little bit because you know most people would do an enormous amount of research themselves when it came to this I just happened to be sitting in an advisory board meeting with the secretary of state for business innovation and skills so I mean that that's cheating right because you're sort of <laughs> sitting there and and all the information is brought to you you know you've not really done any work and there's, there was a particular politician who's really passionate about skills um he's our current secretary of state for health say Matthew Hancock but at the time he was sort of the bridge minister between biz and DFE and so he came into this meeting and he was so passionate about it he just he talked about it so much Uh, and I was listening to him and he said this one thing that that just really stuck in my mind and it really bothered me and he was talking about the 1.8 million students who were underperforming I think when it came to uh, literacy and numeracy and he was, you know, quite, he, he wanted to do something about this. And, um, and, and I remember he was talking about some American approach and, you know, why can't we, you know, and I think we've seen this in, obviously we've seen this in, whether people agree with politics or not, I always think, you you know, you've got to sort of put that aside and you've got to think about the real, real important issues and, and take the good of what someone's trying to do and the good of what they're trying to say and take that at face value. Because sometimes we get so caught up in the politics and the personalities and what's in the media that we forget what's the actual work, what's the task at hand, what are we trying to solve? And he was really passionate. So I I, um, I took on a, a small little working group, if you like, as to what's actually happening in schools. Vince Cable was very, very supportive of trying to figure out what was going on because he was, skills was part of his remit. And um, frankly, I was just really disappointed. I ended up realising that I was funding schools in Commonwealth countries that I thought was really great, you know, and I went, I visited them, there's videos of them, they're on YouTube, you know, where they're all learning on the pavements, and and yet, you know, it's good that we were doing that, but when I learned of the real problems on the front line of education, like the one-size-fits-all delivery of education, the fact that we need to differentiate and personalise, the fact that when you have a teaching and learning process and teachers spend 60% of their time marking and planning and not actually what they signed up to do, to the point where, you know, in this country, three quarters of them want to quit their jobs in the next three years. While we've got a rise in teachers, teacher applications this year, which is fantastic, the retention of teachers is still a very big issue, right? We need teachers to not want to leave after two to three years in the job because we know from the data that those that stay the longest, those that stay longer end up not quitting. How do we solve those problems? And I just thought, I've funded all these schools in for, in Commonwealth countries that are all replicating the British model. And if the British model doesn't work, what hope is there for those schools? And so decided to do an entire reset and thought, oh, my gosh, there is a fundamental problem here. Went to speak to lots of teachers in schools. That learning that that teaching experience that I had in higher education was actually really informative. You know, I had a class of 30. No one in the class, really, apart from one student out of the two years, wanted to learn law from me um, because they were postgraduates and they were journalists. You have to pass the law module to then become a journalist. This is one of the top degrees in the country for for postgraduate journalism. So if you want to go and work at the BBC or et cetera, you'd want to be on this course. Um, There were loads of challenges with it and decided that we needed to solve the problem. And and that's essentially how, I suppose it's that, question of what's wrong that 
not being you know the idea is not to be not to worry about the fact that your ideas or your the problem that you've managed to identify is disruptive I think that's really important in terms of education and what you know what are we learning throughout all of this um the ability to ask tough questions but not be afraid of actually thinking about how to execute the answer or the solution the fact that when you're trying to actually execute it might not be the right solution but you've got to iterate along the way and just not being afraid of any of that and that feels to me a little bit like the themes of how I got into law, how I then ran a food company, how I then started Century in Education is 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 that. And I don't really know where I got it from, James, but I, I feel a lot of it must be from my brother, my mum and my dad, because I think I grew up around that. Mm. You can edit all of that out if you like. <laughs> it's too much. It's not at all. Uh, that, I mean, that thing, the, the thing that really st- sticks out at me there is you not taking no for an answer, seeing your dad saying that he wouldn't take no for an answer and saying that that came from home. And I just sort of wrote down, it needs to come from school and underlined it because for the kids who don't get that message elsewhere. And I know from having watched an interview that you did with someone else that's also on YouTube that through this journey, you've had people t- telling you no at every stage. Oh, every stage. Oh, every stage. I still get people telling me no. I mean, it's even today, you know, I, I get people telling me no. You get people telling you no more than you get people telling you yes at the beginning. And that's a formula. Uh, there aren't many entrepreneurs that will give you a, a different a different pattern or a different history. What happens is that, you know, I learned this from the amazing Richard Harpin, who uh, was the fa- is the founder and runs HomeServe, you know, and uh, he says no plus no plus no plus time equals a yes. And I learned that from him maybe over a decade ago. And, um, you know, you've, it, it, yeah, it's about that perseverance and that resilience. And we often talk about those as being two of the key skills that we want all of our children to learn. The issue is obviously, you know, I remember going to school and meeting a careers counsellor who then typed in how I was doing in certain subjects into some old computer those big old back computers and you know it came up with plumber or librarian and I remember going home to my parents saying I'm going to be a plumber or a librarian and by the way they're fantastic jobs and plumbers make far more money than than many of us do which we know but the fact is is that you know that didn't please my parents because they wanted to hear doctor lawyer or accountant which is very typical for, for Asians um but the idea that someone can type into a computer very, very few metrics and then somehow make a conclusion that this is all that you can be, there's something so wrong about that. Um, and, you know, it was about growing up at home and hearing those messages about how much one can achieve. And that does need to be shared with everybody. And you're right, those children who necessarily have that hope, you know, where are they going to learn those lessons from? And I think actually many schools do a tremendous job of, of trying to open, you know, and, you know, make sure that their horizons are as big and as wide as possible. But this is all very, very challenging because the amount that we then put our teachers, you know, the amount we put on our teachers and the pressure we put them on, you know, put them under, which, you know, you've got to do this then you've got to do that. Now you've got to make sure they're ambitious. Now you've got to make sure they persevere and they're resilient. It's a really torn order to ask any one human to ensure that they deliver all of that with, you know, 30 children to 180 in a year group sat in front of them.
I'd like to get into AI now because we we because obviously that's where you've sort of you've settled and you you've decided that this is the you know the answer to lots of this sort of one size fits all approach to education that we have. Your answer to that has been to set up an AI company, and I'm fascinated by AI and I read about it all the time. You know, I read Super Intelligence and yeah, you know the singularity yeah. is near yeah. and all this all this good stuff, all the Yudkowsky stuff. I'm fascinated by it. And um, and I'm really interested to I've not really come across much about its use in education, but just as a way into this, because you often frame it in terms of, you know, the need to personalize learning. But again, as a sort of as a moment of devil's advocacy, there are people who would defend one size fits all and say that, that they are a fan of you know, whole class teaching and that they're a fan of, of for example, you know, the use of textbooks, for example, as a way to educate children to a certain standard. Uh, and because it's partly, I think, because it's, you know, just much more practicable than it is to differentiate to everybody. But there are people out there who sort of different, who disagree with the idea that we should even differentiate, that we should, you know, there are some, some countries, for example, in Japan, as far as I understand it, there's almost no differentiation in terms of what they expect in terms of outcomes. The kids get different amounts of support and, you know, there's space in between lessons so that teachers can have more one-to-one -one type, you know, they personalize it in that way. But there are people who sort of don't buy into that, that vision of, you know, the need to personalize education. So I'd like to start with that. What's your case for, for personalizing? Yeah, well, look, I mean, you know, just to start off with a sort of higher level perspective, if they're really happy with it, then they're happy with the fact that 55 to 65 year olds have better literacy and numeracy than our current 16 to 25 year olds. You know, let's let, let's just say, OK, we're happy with that. Let's just say, OK, we're happy with the fact that, you know, we're not going to level up. We're happy with the fact that we're not going to level the playing field. That's absolutely fascinating because that was something that a previous guest raised. He said that there was a, a, a study done where they were looking at literacy and numeracy skills across the whole population and people in the 55 to 65 and older category were performing better than kids in sort of, you know, 16 to 20, the kids who've had, you know, literacy hour and numeracy hour and all that stuff. And that's really interesting because those older people went to school when there was no national curriculum. This was like the Plowden primaries in the 60s and 70s, you know, where, pe where people think now characterize that time as very sort of permissive and, you know, sort of progressive and woolly minded. There was no Ofsted. There was no league tables then. Um, and yet, you know, you can't argue with this data that, you know, people who were at school at that time have got really strong literacy and numeracy skills. That's a fascinating fact. Yeah. And I think, you know, there are people who I was on a panel recently and, and somebody said, actually, when I went to school, you know, whenever that might have been three, four decades ago, actually, um, the standards were terrible compared to what they are now. And I think we've got a lot of those stories. That's why all of this ended up coming. Nobody had a negative attitude or a malicious reason as to why we now have a regulator. And these are all things to actually make the system better. Right. And and there will be people who say, well, actually, I think the education system today looks like it's better on paper than what it was before. And there are individual stories. I think the, the issue is, is that often we're quite subjective with what we think. And and the reason why I've put all this data in the book is because we have to not try and be so subjective. We have to be objective. We have to look at, well, how did that affect all the children? Right. How did that affect all of the students? And so 
I just think if, if people don't want to change things, if they if they want to shy away from technology, which they're using on their phones, they don't want to admit it. But if they're on Facebook, if they're on Amazon, if they're on Netflix, they're using AI every single day. If they're searching on Google, you're using AI. So if you want to use AI as a tool to make your life quicker and easier when it comes to shopping or investing, you know, saving or buying a holiday, then, you know, it, it's kind of strange that you don't want to use this exactly the same tool to make the education system a little bit more efficient and better. And so it, you just have to you just have to be OK with saying I'm happy with the status quo. You have to you have to say both. If you want to say you don't want change, you have to say I'm happy with how it currently is. And what I can tell you right now, and this is subjective, I'm not happy with how it currently is. I'm not happy that there are many children out there who just you know, they don't get what they need. And the data tells us they don't, not prayer tells us they don't. The data says that they don't. You know, for example, if you hear the chairman of the Education Select Committee, Rob Halfon, I know he's written the forward to the book. But if you hear about what he talks about, when he talks about further education, when he talks about social mobility, children from disadvantaged backgrounds, no matter what ethnicity, you know, you can't deny the data that they are then producing. And so anyone who's against any sort of change just has to also check that box and you know I think that that's really important you have to do both you can't have it both ways and say we don't want to do anything but by the way you know oh yes I'd absolutely love the system to be different to those for those disadvantaged children well no because you're not doing anything about it and so you know when it comes to AI and you know you ask the question about you know personalization what we have to be really really clear about is it's not the answer you know it isn't it's not the answer to everything it is an answer it's part of the solution to some of the problems and what we have to do is be able to unpick those problems and we have to be able to focus on okay well you know which ones are we going to be able to solve and how are we going to be able to solve them and there isn't going to be one broad brush tool one magic bullet that's going to be able to do all of it AI is an incredibly powerful technology. We know that already. Education has been very slow to adopt it for good reason. But when we know that, and, you know, you talked about one size fits all. So, you know, with one size fits all, I mean, there aren't many teachers that I know in England who say, yes, I like to go into a classroom, just, you know, state what I need to state in terms of a knowledge-based curriculum and maybe even apply skills upon it and then leave it at that. Whether you've got mastery methodology, whether you've got, you know, teachers that want children to be stretched when they need stretch or, you know, gaps filled and focus on problems and struggling children and try and differentiate for every child at every time. It's 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 not that big of you. Culture plays part of part of that. You know, culture in Japan is very different to culture in England. Getting children to maybe sit down at desks in rows, do things a certain way. We have to be very mindful of the fact that China, Japan, there are certain countries where culture will play a large part into whether you can have children sat in rows in that particular way. So all of this plays a part in trying to analyse, well, what, what should the system be like? What do we want to do? And with technology, it's really about not using tech for tech's sake, not trying to say, look, here's some complex, sexy kind of terminology. Let's just apply it to education. No, it's, you know, what do we want to achieve? If you want to improve learning outcomes, demonstrate efficacy in the teaching and learning process, if you want to learn about an individual, 
Well, AI has been used to personalise in different sectors. So the question is, how can we use it to personalise when it comes to learning? And the nuance here is that you can't just apply a sort of recommendation algorithm, the same that Amazon does or Netflix does. You know, if we it's sort of machine learning, right? So and, and, you know, engineers will argue about what AI is, but what AI is not is it's not the same as human intelligence. It's not about humans developing a system that's rules-based, that follows a certain amount of set rules, as complex as they may be. Um, AI is about the system then becoming more intelligent itself, right? Because otherwise there's no difference between HI, human intelligence, and AI. So taking a system that can learn, well, how is James learning is, as I said, not it's very different to Amazon and Netflix type systems because how you learn, there's a lot of neuroscience in that. There's a lot of sort of, you've got to take into account pedagogy. You've got to take into account the learning science. And it's quite complex, but it's entirely possible. And so when we researched this over two whole years before we even went into one school and then for two years in schools, um, actually looking at the information and the data and trying to understand how to train this AI so it would work effectively and have the desired impact. That's four years, four whole years worth of work with some very, very talented people. Um, we came up with the conclusion that, look, it really can increase learning outcomes, which is often, you know, one of the KPIs, if you like, for an education system. Yeah. yeah and it, yeah, it can increase learning outcomes for the disadvantaged, for those, you know, who, for example, are on, you know, people premium few school meals, for students with certain special needs, it's not going to be able to appeal to all of them but it can do it for some. And at the same time, you know, using big data analysis, it can also provide really important insights and information to the educator where you can now empower the teacher. So if we think about the teacher and who that is and how highly skilled they are, you know, what should they spend their time doing in the classroom? Well, it is those human skills that you want to be able to essentially amplify. So the idea is that the AI augments the teacher. It, it's a tool for the teachers and the learners to use to differentiate, help differentiate for the student, but provide the teacher with the information they need to make timely targeted interventions. You know, no more finding out a parent's evening as well for a parent that your child is struggling after a whole term because actually you can log into something that will tell you instantly and help them so it's it's about that sort of general concept mm. i mean it sounds really interesting and there's so many examples of tech being used and you talk about these in the book in a way that just don't work very well and often things that are things that are promised that are going to liberate us end up enslaving us like you know yeah. spreadsheets with all sorts of colored you know conditional formatting in them and email you know, that supposedly makes things easier, but actually we end up becoming a slave to to our phones yeah. and answering emails at all times of the day. Virtual learning environments are often just rubbish. And one of the things that you talk about in the book is that like, essentially what we often do with EdTech is just reproduce what we do in analog. Yeah. And you just do it in, you know, in through, through a computer and it might save a bit of photocopying. But it does seem to me that AI does things that are fundamentally different. I don't really understand exactly what it what it is that that it does and how it works. I'll tell you. Let me tell you. So let me let me explain it just because I think I'll have a go. So what the AI well what what let me explain what Century's doing because you can use AI for different things. So you've got assessment systems, and I'm very happy at any point to to talk about AI in different forms of, of you know in terms of how it's applied to education. But in this sense, um, 
if you think about search, right, search technology. So when you're on Google or Yahoo or Bing or any of those sorts of search platforms, right, what those platforms are doing is they're tracking when you type something into the box that you want to search for, and then you're scrolling down the page. If you remember when these search engines first came out, you might have to scroll down the first page. You might have even had to click onto the second page to find what you wanted, right? So they tracked every individual, what you typed in, and when you scrolled, many of these technologies, not all of them, but many of them will, t- will actually track your scrolling down, which links you hover over, even if you don't click them, and then which ones you click. And, you know, they, they can track all of that. So what they're doing is they're tracking your behavior on search technology to then be able to see patterns and correlations in how, how what do humans search for? right? What words and phrases do they use? And then what is it that they're actually interested in? And if a machine can track all of that data, now, if you're thinking about how you hover, how you scroll, what you type in, the differences in the words, etc., that's a lot of data, right? You know, where are you from in the world? Why is it, you know, contextually, some words mean different things, etc., etc. That's a lot of data. It would take a human being a very, very long time to sift through all of that and figure out what every single search actually was meant to then result in for a human, right? Because we're all searching for different things and our interests are different. Mm. But what the technology is able to do is look at patterns and correlations in that data, in those interest items, in those search words and the terms, and then be able to very, very, very quickly analyze, well, when someone types X, they want to see Y, right? And it will come up with various versions of that. So if we use exactly that sort of idea, but on an education platform, where an AI, a machine, you log in, it's tracking every subject that you are looking at in terms of digital content, right? How did you learn the content? Let's say it's, you know, an inspector calls, right, in the literature. And the reason I'm using this example is everyone always thinks of maths. Let's not talk about maths for a second because, you know, this technology can be used for anything, any subject, and even corporate learning and development, right? And so if you then uh, are tracking how a student's looking at inspector calls, act one, scene two, act four, scene one, you know, the characters, the plot, um, what content are they looking at? What's the content actually telling them? What are the skills levels in the content? What questions are they asking afterwards, asked afterwards in terms of formative assessment? How do they answer those questions? How long do they spend? All of these, if it's collecting all of that information, what a machine can then do very quickly, that again would take a human years and years, or even a group of humans years and years, is it can look at patterns and correlations in that data. So this is more machine learning, right, that I'm explaining, but just to get the concept. Mm -hmm. And then start to analyse, well, when students learn in a certain way and we're analysing their effort levels, their focus levels, their pace of learning, how they engage with a particular subject, how they move through the questions, you know, were they marked as, as having special needs? What's the, maybe, you know, the background of the student, et cetera. All of these types of data points, you know, a machine can then analyze, well, what's best for this student to learn next? So are they struggling in physics because they're struggling in maths? Are they struggling in an inspector course? Because actually they're struggling with spelling and grammar. They're getting the context right, but they're unable to actually answer the question properly. These are things that affect you at the end of the day when you're being assessed, right? Not that assessment is the whole purpose of education, but people are interested in students being able to produce a final piece of work, right, that takes into account all sorts of skills. So an AI can come up with 
those patterns and correlations in behaviours while learning because it's combining neuroscience, how we learn, cognitive load, theory, you know, things about memory function. So when should James repeat um, a certain nugget of information so actually it can be embedded in his long-term memory he can apply skills upon that it's very difficult for a teacher to do that for 32 kids every single day in a particular subject and keep track of their their memory function right whereas a machine can actually quite effectively use these techniques but the problem is, is that you can't just use it on its own and independently it's there it's providing students with that personalization but then it's also providing lots of information to teachers so teachers in the classroom during those face-to-face -face moments where they're making an intervention that intervention is incredibly accurate right and it's it's in time and so that's essentially what an AI can do in that sense and then very briefly but when you're talking about you know, content in education and actual digitized materials and curricula, you know, you could use artificial intelligence to be able to understand what's behind the content. So what skills is this content actually testing a student? When we talk about knowledge and skills, you know, what skills are being applied in this particular area or not? And you can build um, deep learning models and you can essentially start to analyze that content. Whereas otherwise, what do teachers have? They've got textbooks. You know, they've got pages and pages of textbooks, maybe some digital material, but you, you've sort of got to rely on the little box at the top that tells you the learning objectives, haven't you? And then you've got to just mark the test. And then we're asking our teachers to become data analysts by saying, well, how did each child do in the test? Why didn't they do well? That takes an enormous amount of time. So, you know, AI has, you know, it, it, there are huge advantages in using this technology and teaching and learning in the right way and recognizing how it can amplify you know good parts of the process how it can help to take away some of those unnecessary tasks not at all you know being one of these sorts of systems that increases workload but actually taking a lot of that unnecessary workload away and and but you know the big question is can it be applied widely so that we don't end up with a section of society that has access to it and, and do better as a result and then a section of society that, that doesn't. In practical terms, um, what does this mean in terms of like in terms of the classroom and how long would a child have to be like spending time with a device or a screen in order to for the machine to sort of to learn all of this stuff? Yes, yeah, so in primary school, you know, a student will spend about half an hour to 40 minutes a week using the system and they you know they would they would in that in that time they might do a little nugget in maths. Uh, we call them nuggets, like little bite-sized pieces of learning, uh, one in English or spelling and grammar and maybe a science one. So some children will do all three. It might take them an hour. Some will do one or two. It might take them 20 minutes. In secondary school, you're looking at about an hour on average per student. Uh, they might be focused on a particular area because what the, what the AI does and what it helps you do is when you go to the platform, you don't have to, you don't just go through the topics that you're learning in class necessarily. It comes up with a recommendation of what you should learn next. And if you follow that, it will interleave between different subjects because it knows that, you know, we know that that's good for memory function, mm. but it will give you what you need to learn. So you might find that your peer group is learning Pythagoras' theorem that's fine. You might be given roots and powers because the machine knows that unless you actually learn roots and powers, there's no way you're going to be able to excel in Pythagoras. So, you know, it will give you and recommend what you need to learn next. And so, you know, it's only really, you know, up to about an hour and a half. We do have some students, you know, that, that spend a lot longer on it. Um, we have independent learners, um, you know, 
that their parents are given access to the system or school children, you know, at school, they've got it, who just spend a lot longer. They like learning on it, which is fantastic. Um, but there's definitely no need to do more than that amount of work. So it's a real myth when people think, well, AI and education or, you know, we have to spend all day in front of a screen. Actually, not at all. And it's also not the case that a school that's looking for this sort of technology suddenly needs to buy an entire host of um, you know, uh, of devices. Now, that that was true for many during lockdown, which was a very different situation. Um, and, and and I really empathise with all the schools that, that managed, you know, that didn't get the devices in time. But, you know, pre-COVID and, and hopefully post-COVID, you know, schools with an ICT suite, for example, have been able to utilise this sort of technology highly effectively just by being able to have that sort of rotation system of, of certain classes using the technology at a certain time, which means that they've they've avoided spending a lot of money on, on new kit, if you like. Um, but one of the things that schools tend to struggle with that is not something that unfortunately the sort of software and even hardware companies can necessarily help with is infrastructure and bandwidth. You know, when a school is struggling in terms of bandwidth and it can't get online, um, that is something that needs to be solved. And, and, you know, given that we're now having conversations about 5G and the growth of 5G, it kind of strikes us as, as a bit crazy that there are schools that don't even have 3G. Yes. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I would have imagined from from the first part of your answer, I would have imagined that, that children were going to be having to spend a lot longer at terminals than that. But I suppose that part of the power of AI is that it can draw inferences. If, if it draws on large data sets, yes. a bit like the Cambridge Analytica stuff, right? They can tell how, who you are by 10 Facebook likes. Is it a bit like that, that it can sort of draw inferences by from these nuggets that you get, that you're able to sort of to detect patterns and this is this kid fits this sort of like archetype? It's less less profiling um, because that sort of technology is, is very much looking at your personal data. So an AI for learning, and, and for example, the, I can't say this for every system out there, but with Century System, actually your personal data in terms of your demographic special needs doesn't affect what you're given. Um, and the reason why is because otherwise you create algorithm bias, right? So if an AI, for example, knew your background, your demographic, your ethnicity, etc., then you don't want an AI to start coming up with assumptions about your learning just because of the colour of your skin. That would be terrible. And so actually, Century System, which I do think is it's the gold standard in the way that they, you know, that the educators, engineers and scientists have built it together, is that it's very much taking into account the ethics of AI and, and what shouldn't and shouldn't be there. But where that data does come into play is the teacher dashboard. So when a teacher logs in for an, a senior leader in a school to then to, to then combine the behaviours, but with an analysis of, well, actually, in your school today, this is how all of the males from a people premium background are performing comp in comparison with the girls or the non-people premium. To be able to see a deviation is really, really powerful. You know, for a head teacher to be able to say, look, we're really kind of failing in progressive spelling and grammar, you know, literacy with this particular demographic. So it allows you instantly that day, you know, to talk to the senior leadership team and say, how are we going to fix this? Rather than waiting at the end of the year for a set of summative assessment, high stakes results that have damaged you know, the opportunity for those children. Um, and, and nobody wants to do that. So that analysis, so it's really about using personal data at the big data analytics stage, at the analysis stage, rather than using it in, in the algorithms. And, and that's, that's really, really important. And I think that this is where the, the conversation about ethics and AI and, um, 
you know, it's one of the reasons why I co-founded the Institute of, of um, uh, you know, Ethics for in Education, for AI in Education with Sir Anthony Sardin and Professor Rose Luck, and it's chaired by Lord Clement Jones. I think there's lots and lots of people who are really, really interested in this area, as they should be. It's incredibly important. But for us, you know, it's, it's very much what do we know so far and how can we ensure that we 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 take into account any risks, uh, mitigate them, uh, and that we, we do build that gold standard of a system. Just as a final point, because I know you need to leave shortly, um, just in terms of globally, you know, like you talk about in the book, there's a global shortage of teachers and there are many, many, many millions of young people who are outside of formal education completely. And there's just not enough teachers or schools to plug that gap. And I think that that might be a wider conversation, but I think that that's a really strong argument for investing in this technology. It's just a numbers game. You know, we need to find ways that we can scale up low cost, effective ways to help kids. And I think that you're talking about the technological solution. And I also think that my own research around, you know, learning to learn, if we can teach kids how to be autodidactic, how to teach themselves stuff, how to bootstrap their own education. And Kate, you mentioned earlier, Kate now lives in the Dominican Republic. She's, she got stuck there during lockdown and now she's set up a school um, a high school that's all based like a bottom-up, child-centered sort of learning-to-learn type school. Um, and if we can figure out how to scale up these practices, um, you know, I, th- I guess that the learning-to-learn version is a sort of analog version of autodidacticism, but I think that this AI can be really powerful as well when you've got really good content and, like you say, it's tailored to people's needs and takes account of culture and so yeah. on. It allows children to take agency in their own learning, which is really, really important, and that, that's part of the process, um, you know, learning on a system that's using AI teaches them about AI automatically. So this whole notion of we need to teach you what AI is, well, actually they get it already sort of before the teacher does, which is really, really fascinating. Um, and, you know, yeah, it's absolutely part of what can, what can we give students so that they can learn, you know, this is actually what I now need to learn next and, and take that ownership um, in the learning journey. So you don't spoon for a child learning how to learn. You've got to show them how to do it themselves. And so, this technology is definitely, you know, helps to be part of the solution. But but as I always say, it's not the full solution. You you also want a lot of face-to-face time. You want teachers to be able to then build those really critical skills that we've spoken about. But, you know, we need to give teachers the time to be able to do that. So when we're talking about the world and the shortage of teachers, you're right. You know, there's no magic wand that's being waved. We're not getting the numbers of teachers that we need across the board. So we do need to look at alternative solutions, but ones where we can still achieve the goals that we want to achieve. The big question is, what are those goals? And that's the big question, you know, that we need to sort of, we need to answer that question again. We need to say, well, is what we're currently providing able to get us down that route? Is, you know, a system where we're sort of, you know, strangled by this accountability system, this uh, high stakes assessment where you apply a bell curve you know do you want to walk into every primary school and say to a child a third of you will not do well (laughs) that's just the way it is sorry guys you know I I think that that, that those you know if, if again you know for those that don't argue for any sort of change at least then side by side be happy with the fact that that's you're okay with that and I don't think many of us are and so this is exactly why you know again it's not it's not a solution for everything it's it's part of the solution 
And uh, but but you know, as I say in the book, that there are many important things to talk about in education, not just technology. Um, and we really have the opportunity during such a devastating time to create something very positive, which is it's been the system's been disrupted, everything's been disrupted. Can we try and change things for the better in some ways before things settle down again um so at least we can look back on this period and say that you know we did something very positive and i think that you know uh, you know it's just a call to action like you know who's satisfied and if they're not sure about what's wrong with the system then then by all means read the book or read or listen to all of your podcasts you know i mean either way the point is be inquisitive and be curious if you if you're collecting your child from school and you're not asking any questions then you know Obviously, everyone cares about their child's education, but 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 you should at least know the data and know the facts behind what's going on to then say that you're happy with the status quo. Yes, absolutely. And just in closing, then, I mean, you're dead right, and I, I wanted to to make that clear that that to make that point that um, that the book is not obviously you're running an AI company and you're interested in in pursuing that agenda. Um, and I think that I think that it looks like it's promising and I'm, and I'm interested to hear more. But the book is not just, you know, an argument for AI. Right. And towards the end, you sort of identify just to just to end on a few solutions. You talk about the fact that the curriculum is you refer to it as being curriculum bloat. It's very over over um, stuffed with stuff. And there's so much content to get through that, you know, that's a that's a big problem. Um, replacing an ineffective and stressful exam system. You talk about the GCSEs are a bit like a speed camera hidden in a lay-by that's sort of trying <laughs> yeah. to catch people out in this one one shot chance at the end of year 11 and a third must fail by design. The third one is about trusting teachers with freedom to do what they want and to have that to, to have much more of a sort of an interpersonal when you when you have less content to get through. And I know this from teaching in a learning to learn classroom when you're doing project type work, you can have those much more in-depth conversations with, yeah. with kids and you can go around and get to really know them and coach them and mentor in, in, in the way that they need to. The fourth one is um, about mental health. There's, yeah. there's a lot of that in the book and that's a whole other conversation, but there's lots of very alarming data around the increasing um, rates of mental ill health, self-harm. They've, they've doubled, say, so prescriptions, um, hospital admissions, you know, since sort of the mid-2000s, you know, 2006, 2010. You know, these numbers are, are doubling. So, um, yeah, parents ought to be concerned. There's no point just thinking we're somehow invincible and, you know, insulated from this. It, it applies across the board. And uh, and it's something that we're going to have to deal with um, within the system because many of our young people who are in the system, it's that system that they're relying upon in a sense, even if they don't know it, to ensure that they can leave happy and healthy in terms of their mind. Yeah. And um, yes, I think it's it would be a real shame not to invest in this area now because otherwise long term we'll be paying for it regardless. And and obviously we're not that, con you know, yes, paying for it economically is not really what we're concerned about. Um, you know, it, it is what it is. But but why should we allow this to happen um, to young people? So it's, that support needs to be there. And the answer is not to simply upskill teachers so they have yet one more thing um, to have to do. The answer is how can we support our teachers to provide that pastoral care for every child? And I can't see any other way around it other than attaching pound signs to that sort of support. Um, but, you know, if anyone else has any better solutions, then then obviously... I'm sure that the government would love to hear them, but it's really important we don't shy away from that conversation. 
Absolutely. And obviously mental health is a, is a complex issue and there are many factors. But the, the question remains, you know, we're not suggesting that schools are the cause of this. But to what extent do schools alleviate it and to what extent do schools compound it? And I'm pretty sure that, you know, repeatedly being forced to sit exams that you know you're going to fail is not going to help. Which is not, yeah, but which is not schools, right? That's that's the system schools of have course, to operate in. Of course, yeah, that's not a teacher-shaming yeah. situation. No, this is right. this is a systemic problem. And, and, I, actually, and actually, James, how many teachers struggle with mental health issues because yeah. of that system? And, yeah. and you get, again, it's important for us to have the data on this. And, you know, that there's lots of evidence out there. But, but you know, you're absolutely right. It's it's there are, there are bigger, more fundamental sort of systemic issues that are creating some of these problems. But then, you know, with mental health, I mean, there's all sorts of things. There's, say, you know, social media, for example, there's bullying, bullying online now, which is very, very, very difficult um, to track. You know, we're starting to see, although, you know, this week, say we're, um, you know, given us a podcast, I'll say so it's sort of the 10th of December 2020, um, we're starting to see an increase in, uh, you know, the EU. I know that obviously there's a big, conversation today about whether we're going to be you know we're going to have a deal or not no deal but um, you are starting to see movement in terms of regulation when it comes to big technology players right when it comes to sort of the anti-competitive nature of those technology technology companies or policing the internet so I think this stage that we want to now see particularly the UK get into is how are we going to protect our children from online harms and how do we make sure that those the big tech is accountable um for, for you know for, for you know essentially held to account if for example they're unable to mitigate the risk in certain way that conversation is happening but but you know the, the solution can't come soon enough I, mean, I really really want to see that happen completely there's so much more that i would love to talk to you about but i know you need to go and pick up your kids so um we're going <laughs> to uh, pause it for now i really recommend to listeners to get a hold of this book um, and I look forward to to finding out more about your work and uh, to continuing this conversation sometime in the future. Thank you so much for having me, James. Time is a measure of change. We don't have much time. Time is a measure of change.